The Real Thing by Russell Morris was Australia's biggest selling single in 1969. At over six and a half minutes, it was nearly twice as long as most of the conventional singles of the day. It was easily Australia's most outlandish song of that year, with producer Molly Meldrum throwing everything but the kitchen sink into the mix. I asked Russell Morris how he came across the song in the first place. We searched for a long time and then one day Johnny Young played us this song and we liked it. It was a girl that I love. And I said, that's a good song. I'd like to do that. I said, have you got any other songs? And he said, oh, I've just got a couple of songs. He said, I wrote this song as a bit of a joke, actually. This is a rock and roll song for a rock band. And he played it like a rock and roll song. And Ian and I looked at each other and said, that's the song we want. And he said, you're kidding. That's not a solo artist song. We said, that's the one we want. Initially, it was only meant to be three and a half minutes long, but the band, when they played it and they got to the end, the drummer did a drum fill and went into double time. So we just let them continue in the session. They were having a good time. Then they just finished the song naturally because the drummer just sort of went clunk, 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 clunk and threw his sticks down. And Ian said, don't worry, we'll just fade it after about three and a half minutes. And then Ian rang me up a night later and said, I've got a great idea. Let's keep the record six and a half minutes long We'll make it like an EP with a little section in the centre and the, the radio people, when they want to fade it, once it gets there, they can fade it out themselves. Or if they want to, they can play the whole thing. Where did the sound effects come from? Oh, from old records, from, uh, there was a radio guy then called Dick Hemming, and he had collections of all these old sound effects records and German marching records and all that sort of stuff, and we put those on, and then we couldn't, we didn't have a speech of Winston Churchill, so Ian pretended to be Winston Churchill, you can hear the voice in the background, we will fight them on the beaches, we will fight them on the, so he did that, and we sort of played with it with the sound effects to make it sound a bit weird, and then we got Brian Cadd reading off the back of a box of tape, the uh, liability clause, so he's, and the user for the product of, yeah, that's, so that's Brian Cadd reading in a stupid voice. Who played the piano? Brian Cadd. That's brilliant. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. And it was an, a fluke accident that that happened. What happened, we were running through the mix. The engineer was wanted to, when you want to isolate in, uh, instruments, you just push the buttons in and out on the other instruments. So he got to that point and he just happened to push it right on the beat because he wanted to isolate the piano to see what it sounded like. And everything dropped out and the piano went... And we went, wow, fantastic. The basis of the song took only a couple of days to record, but the overdubs kept them in the studio for an unprecedented four weeks. The record company was counting the cost and started to get very nervous. They went nuts, but they knew of Ian's reputation, so they flew down from Sydney. They were so angry and they wanted to hear what they were spending their money on. They arrived, rang us from the airport, we're on the way to the studio. Ian panicked, grabbed the master tapes, 
and raced across into Albert Park Golf Course. They arrived, wanted to hear the record. We said, listen, Ian's gone. They said, well, play us the record anyway. No, no, you don't. He's taken the record. He's taken the master tapes. And they, this is our money. You, you cannot do this. So John Sayers, myself, Ken East, head of uh, EMI, and I've forgotten who, who else it was, all had torches and we went across into the golf course to look for him. We found him snivelling in a bunker, hiding. And we made him come back and we thought, this. well, at least I was convinced we'll play it for them. They'll be okay. I'm saying, Ian, don't worry, they'll love it. Put it on, they absolutely hated it. Stormed out and went back to Sydney and said, we'll never release that record. EMI, of course, did eventually release the single, but only after Molly and Russell completed a lap of the biggest radio stations in the country and secured a guarantee of airplay. Just what this piece of Australian pop history is all about is anybody's guess. Nobody seems to know with any certainty, least of all the artists themselves. Perhaps that's one of the song's great strengths, the fact that it left so much up to the individual imagination. A lot of people have read so many secret messages in it and so many sort of hidden things. So it's just a mumbo-jumbo of words. <laughs> 